This is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. In an earlier episode of the podcast, we delved into some of the mechanics of the government's new COVID safe app. And while the experts we've spoken to believe the app is overall safe for use, there are still many of us who aren't sure about it. As it stands, around 5 million people have downloaded the app. But a public health informatics expert, Associate Professor Adam Dunn, who joins us today from the Uni of Sydney, says that while the app does not collect personal data, there is a chance that anonymised data could be re-identified in a security breach. Um, Adam, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, first off, uh, have you downloaded the app? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, a lot of experts I've spoken to, academics and, and so on, haven't yet. I think I don't think I think one of my friendship group, they all, all kind of haven't yet. Um, so let, let's touch on that idea of um, anonymized data maybe being re-identified. You know, can you expand on that for us? Sure, of course. Look, there there are risks with um, the collection of all sorts of data. But I have to say, in this case, I think the government are doing everything they possibly can to try and head off any potential security risks. So <clears throat> while, we, while I think we've been um, burned in the past by problems with data breaches, in this case, what they've done is to try and make sure that the data are kept in places that are less likely to be accessible, um, they've um, been strong on the kinds of policies and laws around um, what would happen if someone tried to misuse these data. And I think that they're doing a reasonable a reasonable job. I have to say, though, of course, that it's pretty understandable that people in Australia are a little bit wary of um, the government accessing their data, given their track record in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering as well, that um, can let's kind of go on maybe some of the, the uses of the app. Can it be accurate if only 5 million of us so far have downloaded it? Um, mm. and, and also, you know, to go along with that, if not everyone has been tested? Yeah, look, there, there's a couple of um, important things that you need to unpack around whether or not the app is actually going to be effective. The first one is uh, the number of people who are downloading and using it. So what we know is that If you're walking around um, and you go and sit down in a cafe and uh, just happen to be within 1.5 metres of someone else um, for a long enough period of time, then you would hope that if they were later found to um, have COVID-19, that if both of you had the app open and on your phones running, that you would be identified and notified that you might have come in contact with someone with COVID-19. What that relies on is um, both of you having the app and both of you using it properly. So what we know, and it's a really pretty simple calculation, if 40% of people have downloaded the app and optimistically of those people that are using the app, they're using it properly at all times, 
then the likelihood of registering that contact in any random encounter is just 4%. So what that really means is that fewer, fewer than 1 in 20 potential contacts will be captured by the app if 40% of the people have downloaded it and half of those people are using it properly at all times. I guess the, the other thing that's important to think about is whether or not the technology itself is actually accurate and reliable. So uh, my research team actually published experiments using these BLE signals uh, last year to track proximity in indoor settings. Um, we published that work in the journal of Biomedical Informatics. And what we found overall was that it was a huge challenge to do this accurately. And that was even in well-controlled conditions. Um, so even the direction of your device can make a big difference in terms of whether or not these signals are actually accurate. I later discovered that um, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal that's, that suggested that one of the engineers who designed the concept for Bluetooth said that the technology simply wasn't designed to generate detailed, reliable data about proximity between devices and said that the accuracy is limited. So if you think about it, we're relying on lots of people downloading app. We're relying on them using it properly. And we're relying on technology that wasn't really designed to be able to to do what it says it's meant to do. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm thinking, you know, what I'm trying to pick apart the app and, and I'm reading and I'm talking about this all day, every day. I'm thinking into a future maybe where, you know, things haven't got much better and we're relying on things like this once things have opened up. And perhaps kind of the app says to me that I've got it. Um, work tell me to go home um, maybe people at work won't go near me or you know but I don't have it I don't know there could be you know a, a litany of kind of false positives um, things that mm. come from it I mean that could be problematic absolutely look false positives can certainly be an issue although I think we probably have to balance that against what the current situation is at the moment I know that there are people who are feeling very anxious about going outside and who are feeling very anxious about um, um, what they can do and where they can go and I suppose one of the advantages of having this app available and used by everyone appropriately would be that at least that would give them some sense of security that if they haven't seen, haven't had a notification, they can be reasonably confident that they're, they're safe walking around. Mm -hmm. I think that that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, that one's a particularly complicated area. But, but I, what I should do is we should go back and, and acknowledge the fact that there are like brilliant people working in public health practice. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds of experts who do contact tracing. And when the pandemic is at a level where there are relatively few cases that we're seeing in Australia on a day-to-day -day basis, then the people who do contact tracing are exactly the people who are gonna be there to sort of quickly mitigate these outbreaks, to contact people, to get them in isolation and to, to sort of look after them and make sure that they're they're um, not going outside and potentially infecting other people. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, I haven't downloaded it yet, but you know, I'm not really going mm -hmm. anywhere, but a walk once a day or you know, something like that. Um, is there a chance? I mean, I, I totally agree with your point that it might allow people who are a bit nervous, maybe like myself, to kind of you know, integrate themselves back into society once we're able to do that. But is there a chance mm -hmm. then that we all rely too heavily on the app causing us to become complacent about the virus. Um, people are already a bit sick of isolation, the government are easing lockdowns, and, and now this. Um, do you see any problems in that area? Absolutely, and I think you've nailed it on the head. This is one of the issues that I think is a problem related to the communication of how um, it's being described and marketed um, as, a, as a potential protective device. You know, the reality is that this app is not protective at all. And if it leads to people 
relaxing the precautionary behavior that they are already doing, then there is a chance that we will increase the, the risk of further outbreaks because people are relying on a piece of technology that is simply not designed to do that. If we advertise the app as sunscreen, well, the thing is, it's not sunscreen. It's actually the world's worst UV indicator. I'm thinking again, uh, looking further into my crystal ball that, you know, is probably a little bit paranoid at this point. But I'm thinking of um, the surveillance aspect of it. And I'm thinking of a future where potentially the go- some unforeseen circumstances happen and the government mandate maybe that we all have the app. And then they say that to protect us against future outbreaks, we all must keep the app. Um, and, you know, things could get a bit murky there. Am I being paranoid or, I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, look, I'm with you on this. I, I read too many old science fiction novels to, to not be paranoid about the level of surveillance that exists in, in society. I think one of the, I think instead of um, worrying too much about the app specifically, I think more about the creeping normalization of surveillance in our lives. And, you know, there's lots of counter arguments here where people say, well, you're using Facebook, you're carrying your phone, you're using social media. All of these things are going to be able to track you and monitor you um, into the future. But uh, the app is probably not necessarily going to be one of the ones that is going to make a huge difference in our lives. It's, um, I believe that in one of the bills that they're trying to pass at the moment, they've suggested that um, it can't be made mandatory and that businesses can't force you to have the app if you want to you know, go into their shop or mm-hmm. if you want to go into a bar or go to a sports game or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So I suspect that the, the, the chances of it becoming something um, almost draconian are relatively slim, but it certainly does add to the normalisation of surveillance in our lives. In Australia, um, we're relatively lucky. There are other countries in the world where um, the use of certain apps um, and the use of certain monitoring are uh, mandatory. Um, so they're talking about making an app mandatory in India. And in China, there were um, requirements for people to use uh, QR codes to be able to access um, public transport and places like that. So you mentioned other countries there, and I'm, I'm sure it may be too early to really know if they've had any benefit. But I mean, have any countries reported that the tech has been successful yet? Not that I know of. So obviously, Singapore is the one that we might look at um, first, because it's the one where we're modeling our app after. Um, and the reality is, I don't think that we've seen evidence that the anything like digital contact tracing would be useful. But I think we have to think about it in, in different terms. And that would be that in, in other places around the world um, where they're attempting to use these apps, they might be helpful um, and they might not. But what's going to really make a difference is the, the workforce that are available to do contact tracing and whether or not they can use these data to make a difference in the work that they do. So remember that this, this app doesn't automatically do contact tracing for us. It really needs to be done in concert with a whole range of other things that include contact tracing, which it supports, but also the kinds of physical distancing and other measures that will make a real difference to um, how long these, this pandemic lasts. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so what would you suggest is a better way to make, I mean, oh, should we move away from this app and just focus on contract tracing, especially, you know, in our country where um, the levels of the outbreak have been quite low as yet? And um, what's the best way mm. to get us back to normality? Yeah, look, regardless of whether the app exists or not, I think we should be um, doing everything we possibly can to support people at work in public health practice, the hundreds of people who are working as contact tracers in the space. And if the app can help them do their job better, great. But more importantly, we need to make sure that the public health workforce is looked after, well-funded, well-resourced, and that we train enough people to be able to do this work appropriately. Well, Professor Adam Dunn, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much.